What is the Divine Council? Maybe you've never even heard of the Divine Council. If not, today you're in for a treat. My guest is Dr. Michael S. Heiser. He's the scholar in residence at Logos Bible Software. And uh, he's uh, written a book called The Unseen Realm, where he deals with uh, the nature of the unseen realm, the spiritual realm, angels, God, these sorts of uh, things, these sorts of topics and questions um, that often get neglected in the church and uh, in sermons and just in teaching, Christian teaching in general. We don't dwell on uh, the spiritual things, uh, spiritual realm that is um, too often. We're largely informed by a, a culture that is, um, you know, scientific and very materialistic. But um, there is indeed a spiritual realm if you're a Christian. There's no denying that. And uh, Dr. Heiser does a, a wonderful job at both in the book and on his popular podcast, which is called The Naked Bible Podcast, which you should definitely be subscribed, subscribed to if you're not already. I highly recommend it. I listen to it myself all the time when I'm working out or in the mornings. In the car, it's, a, it's very educational in nature. He is a scholar, but he does a great job of communicating um, some complicated and complex um, ideas with a, a lay audience. So, with uh, no further ado, let's get into it. Uh, actually, with one further ado, uh, be sure to follow the the uh, link in the description below and head on over to our Patreon page and become a supporter of the show. If you're not already, uh, that way you can get access to the bonus segment of the show, Five More Minutes with Dr. Michael Heiser. You won't want to miss that. Uh, ask him about aliens and different things. He has another show that he does where he talks about fringe topics. The, the title of that show is Fringe Pop 321. And uh, I'll leave links in the description to... Uh, Dr. Heiser's books, as well as his website and and the podcast, uh, the Naked Bible podcast, as well. But uh, hope you enjoy the show and uh, enjoy. In today's modern scientific era, how could you possibly still believe in God? And and the resurrection, people do not rise from the dead. And don't even start to tell me that you think the Bible is God's word. If you've ever heard questions like these, or if you've ever had doubts about your faith. This has helped me believe where each week we aim to answer a tough question about Christianity. Our aim is to strengthen the believer and answer the critic. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and uh, today I am excited to introduce my guest to you. He is the author of The Unseen Realm and the host of the Naked Bible podcast. Ladies and gentlemen... The Naked Bible Scholar himself, Dr. Michael Heiser. How are you doing, sir? Pretty good. <laughs> you like that Can't intro? Complain. Yeah. <laughs> I always try to throw a little curveball to my interviewees there. Yeah, well, sometimes the intros get long, and I, I tell hosts that they might as well just wake up their audience again. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, hopefully that woke you up. Uh, <laughs> thanks so much uh, for taking time out of your day to, to come on and do this. Uh, I'm a big fan of the podcast. I probably listen to every episode now, and I've read the book a couple of times. Um, the unse uh, the unseen realm that that's is. Pretty, that's pretty uh, hardcore, right there. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty hardcore. <laughs> but uh, actually, uh, real quickly, I, I I came to uh, know of you and your in, in your ministry and the podcast and the books uh, as a, as a skeptic. And that's not as a skeptic of Christianity, but as a I remember my friends coming to me and saying, "You've got to hear this divine council stuff," and they're talking about. I just remember them repeatedly saying multiple gods, multiple gods, and then I was like, "What are you all talking about? I got to go hear this for myself." <laughs> and so I assure you, this isn't polytheism. Anybody listening who's not familiar with the Divine Council, but uh, um, 
that's how I came into it. And then, of course, I got hooked as soon as I found the podcast and uh, been here ever since. So I'm really grateful for for what you're doing. I appreciate you for being patient, you know, for actually (laughs) looking. No, I'm serious, actually looking at the content because, you know, I get hit with, with that. You know, people email me, oh, I tried to tell my friends about this, my pastor about this, and they got they got two or three minutes of attention, and that was it. Yeah, I, I would imagine that, yeah. that that does happen. It's unfortunate. Um, and maybe we'll get to talk about that. But before we do, um, if you don't mind introducing uh, yourself uh, a little bit to those who may not be familiar with who you are. Sure. I'm a scholar in residence at Faith Life Corporation. That is the corporate name for Logos Bible Software. The software is the flagship product of the company. been here 14 years. Uh, we, we came here to Washington State right out of grad school. My Ph.D. is from the University of Wisconsin in Madison. Uh, maybe some of your listeners listen to the Bible Project. Tim Mackey went to the same, through the same program. He, his first year was my dissertation year. I actually just interviewed Tim, and uh, the story of how he attended my dissertation defense is a funny one because it's terrifying. <laughs> but he made it through, you know, so... You know, that, that's where I'm from academically. I had a, I had a couple degrees before hitting Wisconsin. I taught a while. I probably taught uh, 12, 15 years in the green campus at four or five different schools, about the same amount of time in distance ed. Uh, my current job, I don't do any of that. I basically write, but in the beginning it was it was directing data projects, which is translation is herding cats with PhDs. Yeah. Um, so we, the software company, you know, produces a lot of, you know, high end ancient language stuff. And so I had to, I had to make sure people turned in their work on time and recruit them and fire them if necessary. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds so like that kind of stuff. Uh, well, uh, again, thanks so much uh, for coming on. Thanks for introducing yourself. I, I know you've been studying this divine council stuff for a long time now, so I'm going to be the real annoying kid that asks you in one question. Sure. Uh, whenever you talk about the divine council, what what is the divine council? If if you could uh, explain that. Yeah, the, the divine council is, on one hand, it's academies for the heavenly host, specifically the loyal members of the heavenly host. Uh, angels is not really a, a good equivalent because angel is just a job description. Okay. Uh, my, I don't know if you've read the, the most recent book, Angels, but I, I go through terminology in the first chapter. Um, we tend to conflate all of the language of the Bible about members of the heavenly host under the little, you know, put it in the bucket of angel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's nothing sinister about that. It's just quite imprecise. But the heavenly host, now I, I say partly academies, because the phrase is a biblical one. Okay, it's Psalm 82, Psalm 89, you know, any other passages. God has a host. He has an assembly. He has a council. There are Hebrew words for that. And so that's what it is. Okay. What is the role of the divine council, this heavenly host? There's multiple roles. Uh, Like you said, the angel is a title or a job description. So what what kind of do they do? Heavenly Host does lots of things. Uh, If you wanted to break it down sort of into broad categories, they not only carry out decrees of God, uh, they they have, you know, sort of more isolated tasks like judgment. Heavenly Host, you know, is described as participating in when God wants evil judged, you know, they'll they'll do that. 
Uh, of course, they bring messages. They they participate in making decisions with God, and that that usually catches evangelicals sort of you know right. askance because they, the first question is, well, what what does God need with a council? I mean, what does an omniscient being need with you know beings to assist him in making decisions? And the the short answer is he doesn't. Right. Okay. The the flip side question is why does God need you yeah. or the church? Can't God just decide you know who's in heaven or hell and call it good? Well, sure he could do that. Okay. But what he does is he likes to have his intelligent creatures, both in the supernatural world and the human world, participate with him as partners in carrying out his will. And part of that, Daniel four, you know the Nebuchadnezzar story. Uh, the, the Holy One, the Watcher, there you go, with two, with more biblical terminology that we just throw into the angel bucket, but mm-hmm. they're different terms, go, comes to Nebuchadnezzar and says, hey, I, I hope you like to eat grass because you're going to be eating it for a while. You're going to yeah. go temporarily insane. And he tells him that this is by decree of the Watchers, plural. He also says a few verses later, this is by decree of the Most High. So it's the decree of both, which... The only way to really parse that is that it was a mutually there was mutual participation in that. But you know the council isn't autonomous. They're not rogue. They don't just do what they want. They assist God, and God lets them mm-hmm. enter into decision making. In, in some cases, First Kings twenty two, it's time for Ahab to die. How do we want to do that? You know, God takes suggestions. And if if one of the spirits in First Kings twenty two would have stepped forward with a dumb idea. You know, God would have said, okay, just sit down, we'll call on you later. Yeah, Anybody else? Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's just stupid. It's not going to work. I mean, God knows if it's going to work or not, but he lets them participate. Yeah. So that, that's all that we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Is this unique in uh, any way to the um, the Hebrew religion, to, 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 the, to the Israelites, or was the divine council familiar to um, other peoples and other religions at the time as well? Oh yeah, it's very familiar. I mean, every every you know ancient culture has a conception of what goes on in the spiritual realm. You know how it conducts its its affairs, and the assumption is, well, you know, we like order over here in our world. We don't like chaos. You know, mm-hmm. chaos doesn't really get too much done. So the gods are much smarter than we are. So chances are they probably like order too. Yeah. They would see the wisdom in it. I mean, these are very simple thoughts, you know, that, that, you know, as we think about order, you know, among human beings and how that's more efficient than just oh, everybody go do what they want. Mm-hmm. You know, we'll just see how that works. You know, so the, the assumption is that the divine world, uh, you know, functions along the same lines. And of course, in biblical thought, there's a reason for that is because we image God. Mm-hmm. You know, we're actually mimicking him. He's not mimicking us. Right. But but as human beings, again, just across the board, every ancient culture had the notion that the supernatural world has a hierarchy. There's order. There's a pecking order. Uh, it's not, you know, full of autonomous beings. You know, somebody reports to somebody else. Again, there's an administrative aspect, a bureaucracy, if you will. So it's really common. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's nothing unique about the the thought process when it comes to the Hebrew Bible. There there are unique elements about the nature of God that he's, what I like to, well, the phrase I like is species unique. Mm-hmm. There's only one of him. There are many Elohim, but 
among the Elohim, there's only one Yahweh. Right. He is distinct for a number of reasons and in a number of examples. There's a number of directions I could go from there, but one thing that came to mind while you were, you were talking about uh, the fact that it's not unique um, um, and that the other peoples around them also uh, had this idea, uh, this concept of the divine council. Uh, let me play the true skeptic here. They, somebody might say, well, didn't the Hebrews, didn't the Israelites just take that from what they knew was around them and then just say that's what their religion was also? You see what I mean, or is that making any sense? Well, I see what you mean, but no, it doesn't make any sense. Well, that's that's good, because I'm not a skeptic, but yeah. Well, I mean, when, when people articulate things like that, yeah. on the one hand, it, it's a very understandable question, mm -hmm. because we're there, there's a certain way that people sort of hear about the Bible and are taught about the Bible, and, and they're shocked, like, if there's anything about the Bible that's similar to something else, like, that's just horrifying, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and that really comes from the way we're taught about Scripture. So in, in that respect, I understand it. But the way the question often gets worded, it's like, one people group can't have this thought unless another people group hands it to them. Right. Like, there's some sort of chain, mm -hmm. you know, of usage. Like, you know gosh, I wish the Chinese would, would hand us this idea on how to do this because we're just sitting here and can't do anything. Yeah. No, I mean, human beings are going to think similar thoughts because the, the, the things that they're trying to think about or the conceptions they have are ultimately going to, in some cases, derive from and mirror, mirror is probably a better word, their own world. Mm-hmm. Again, the need for order and hierarchy, the, the, the coherence of that as opposed to random chaos. I mean, everybody's going to you know, be thinking thoughts along those lines. Nobody's waiting for the civilization next door to hand it to them. But that's what you typically get on the Internet. Right. Oh, like the Israelites couldn't think any thoughts like this until the Babylonians told them to think those thoughts. That's just ridiculous. Right. So that's why it doesn't make any sense, but yet it's an understandable question. That's a good way of putting it. Uh, so the the whole concept of the divine council, the the Elohim, the spiritual realm, the unseen realm, it's all really heavenly minded. To use the cliche, how how practical is it? What does how does this affect maybe the, you know the day to day life for the Christian? Mm -hmm. Well, if if the Christians day to day day-to-day -day life includes day-to-day -day Bible study, it would sure help. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, there's this thing we, that we call the Word of God that we say we believe is inspired, and yet somehow the notion of knowing it better with more precision isn't practical. Right. Again, uh, it's one of those presuppositional sort of questions that I like to pick at. because it, oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, it's an easy topic, okay? <laughs> But, you know, to, to be a little more a little more charitable, you know, with the question I have found and I think a lot of my readers have found that the the supernatural world often in Scripture serves as a template uh, for for our own world. And what I mean by that is the way God relates to and talks about his heavenly host, again, those who are, are loyal to him, especially often frames our understanding or ought to frame our understanding of how God thinks about us as his human children. You know, God already has kids you know, be before he creates humans. It's just the supernatural beings. 
sons of God are there before the you know, foundation of the world. They're there before the human creation. So God already has a family, and he, he I think it's, it's interesting and telling that family terminology is used. Sons of God is also a partnering terminology in the ancient Near Eastern world. And so, you know, you get this vocabulary and it's applied to humans as well. And, and it's not just one kind, it's not just one term or one place. The scripture does this pretty frequently. Why are believers, and, and your English translations destroy this, but, you know, with words like saints. I just hate that, that translation. If you listen to the podcast, you know I hate this. It's one of my hobby horses. I don't like the saints either. I'm a Cowboys fan. So that's... Yeah, right. But the, why are believers called holy ones? Right. Okay, that term has a history. If you go back in the Old Testament, it's almost exclusively, there's like one instance where this isn't true, it's almost exclusively used of God's supernatural agents, his supernatural family. Mm -hmm. But when you get to the New Testament, it's never used of the supernatural family. It's only used of human believers. Does that mean something? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. Okay, and there's, there's a number of trajectories, a number of you know, threads that sort of feed into and feed off of that when it comes to biblical theology. So I like to frame why we should know about angelology, for, for, to use a clumsy term, but a common one. Mm -hmm. It's because there's an identity issue there in how we think about ourselves, how, we, how do we recognize the way God looks at us, because God's original plan was to have a human family that mirrored his supernatural family and that also coexisted with his supernatural family. Mm -hmm. It was the most normal thing in God's mind to have humans created fit for sacred space. Okay, to share the space that he and this, these other supernatural kids occupies. That was normal. That's the way it should have been. And, and God wants to partner with them to spread you know, his, his presence and his good rule throughout the embodied terrestrial world. That's the original plan, to have a blended family and working together to, to do what God you know, wants to get done, to partner with him. So identity and mission. And those are the two things I think that we've, we've fundamentally lost in church. You know, how do we look at ourselves? How do we look at others? How do we look at our brothers and sisters? And what in the world are we doing here? You know, it, it tends to, there are a lot of churches that tend to sort of cultivate an inward focus mm -hmm. where we're we're here to you know to somehow escape from the world church becomes a haven for the believer with no sense of outward mission and, and again it's not like you don't want church to be a haven you you do but that really isn't its job that's that's just a little thing that it does mm -hmm. or it's, it's supposed to do you know we're supposed to you know have a an intentional mindset to do some very specific things. And I think, again, thinking about the unseen world and what God has to deal with there in rebellion, his original mission, the fact that he never changes the agenda, the, the plan, uh, just helps us think a little bit better about how God looks at us and, and you know, really what we're supposed to do, what he wants us to do. He never changed the mission. You know, th there's a reason why Revelation ends with a global Eden. God gets his way. Yeah. That was the original plan. And what changes in, in the middle is how is the plan propelled and impeded and kickstarted and saved? Uh, you know, the whole remnant, you know, idea. That that's the story of scripture. That's salvation history. Yeah. But the plan never changes. 
Well, if you don't mind, I want to kind of switch gears here. We've been talking about the the unseen realm, the divine council, uh, and all of that. Uh, but now, um, again, I say I'm a big fan of the podcast, so I listen to a lot of things, not just what you commentate on the unseen realm, but you know, whole 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 host of different things uh, concerning biblical theology. So I got some questions about that that I think other people will have too. Um, first of all, let's go ahead and start here. Uh, you just mentioned that in the end we will. Um, we're going back to Eden, basically. Like you said, God's going to get his way. There'll be a new Eden, a new heaven, a new earth. And uh, one of the questions that comes to my mind uh, concerning this specifically, and I think other people have as well, is the new heavens, the new earth will be perfect. And I'm, I'm guessing, this is assumption, maybe the assumption's wrong, without sin. Um, will there be the potential for sin in the, in the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Eden and uh, if not, how do we still have free will? Kind of that age-old question. How do you how do you answer that question that everybody has? Yeah, well, I usually get the question in two ways. One, I mean, you your question was pretty general, but sometimes it'll okay. get narrowed to can can uh, you know members of God's heavenly host rebel now, like or in the future? Or, you know, will 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 believers living in the global Eden will they be able to sin and rebel? You know, something like that. Well, on the one hand, we have to say, well, that's possible because neither they nor we are God. In other words, we don't become little Yahwehs. Right. We don't have we don't have the kind of perfect nature that he does. We will still in in some little infinitesimal way be lesser. You know, we're, we're, we're to be made like Jesus. Well, we won't be Jesus. Right. We'll be as much like him as possible. So in some infinitesimal way, we're still lesser. So, yeah, it's possible, just like it's possible that I could be the next American Idol. Are okay? you going to be? No, I, I'm not going to be. <laughs> I, I, you could bet against that, and you'd do quite well. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to win a Nobel Prize or an Academy Award. All these things are possible, Mike, right? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. You know, <laughs> just, yeah, right. but they're, they're hardly probable is the point. So on the one hand, we have to affirm that we are still lesser. Mm -hmm. we, we will not be able to describe our glorified state in ways that make us members of the Godhead. Right. Okay. So, again, there's that little bit of a space between us and, and the the full expression of deity that God is and that Jesus is. But the odds of this happening are infinitesimally, inescapably small. Right. So that that's how I approach that. That's a good answer. I've always thought somewhere along the same lines, like, I mean, unless we just become perfect in the sense that God's perfect, I mean, we have to admit that there's at least yeah. a possibility. So. Um, another question that uh, comes to, comes to my mind uh, often listening to the podcast. Um, I do a lot of apologetics here, um, and so this just naturally comes to my mind. But um, when you talk of Genesis one uh, through eleven, and um, you know the, the whole idea that it might be a, a, a later edition, and is uh, its its purpose was perhaps and. I'm not the scholar here, so by all means, correct me. I'm just going to stumble through this. Sure. Uh, the, its purpose is a, a polemic against the uh, Babylonian gods or Mesopotamian gods. Um, if it becomes this, is there any historicity left? And if so, okay, you go. How do we know that? Or, or if not, maybe perhaps historicity isn't all that. Im how important is the historicity of the first eleven chapters 
Um, I'm sure you've got that question before. So kind of along those yeah. lines. Yeah, I, it's, I would say Genesis 1 through 11 is primarily uh, Babylonish in its polemic. I mean, the, the Egyptian, you know, the Memphite theology takes a little bit of a hit uh, in Genesis 1. That's Egyptian stuff. Canaanite stuff certainly takes some hits, but overwhelmingly it's, it's Babylonish. So whether that means those chapters were entirely composed uh, you know, during the Babylonian exile, I don't know. They were at least edited, you know, pretty heavily. I tend to I tend to think that some of the content, you know, was probably uh, Hebrew oral tradition that gets codified in, in writing. But it, it's it has a significant, you know, Babylonian flavor to it for theological purposes. Now, I don't know if you listened to our, my podcast recently. The the, the introduction to the Exodus thing. I did, and I'd already sent you the questions, so I think okay. you, you cheated and answered the question on there. But, <laughs> but go ahead and answer it here as well. well there, <laughs> there's, it, it, it's hard for us to, I think, we have a, we have a different sense of history. It, it's true that we have a different sense of history than ancient people did, but it, it's also true that that the way we think about history sort of disallows or, or, or makes it difficult for us to think about uh, theologized history, right. you know, what, what scholars would call mythic history. Because when, whenever we see the word mythic and we freeze up and, well, that's non-historical, it's not what it means at all. And it doesn't have to mean that anyway. And I gave the, the little example in the podcast of how I got my job, okay, at, at Lagos. Every one of those events in that story happened. They were real-time events. The way I think about them was theologized. You know, I, I, I see the hand of God in this thing or that thing, and, and that's what the biblical writers are, are typically doing. Mm -hmm. They are telling their story in a theologized way. Okay, they, they, are, they are assigning theological meaning to events. They're not worried about well, did we check this with three or four sources? You know, did, I, did we go interview all the characters involved? You know, all the people that were present at this event, did we write down the dialogue so that we get it? They're not worried about any of this. Mm -hmm. They're looking back on things that happened, and then they, they see not only the hand of God in things, but they also see the activity of God's rivals, God's enemies on a supernatural plane in events. So if we as evangelicals are willing to say that the providence of God is operative, we have no intellectual ground to exclude supernatural evil from the same picture. And the biblical writers did not, you know, they, they embraced the idea of a supernatural worldview. Mm -hmm. So they view events, you know, boots on the ground events as manifestations of or, you know, events that sort of track side by side with supernatural spiritual conflict and they tell both sides of the story in what they write so yeah it's important that the, that the stuff happened mm -hmm. do we have the exact dialogue you no know, nobody's holding a tape recorder for adam no okay like you need to retake adam because this is how it's going to sound you know when we write it down no, nobody's doing that even if we had it they'd say it was doctored or something probably so. right you know it, 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 there, there's <laughs> It's it's really comparing apples to oranges, yeah. you know, when you get right down in, into the details of how this works. But I would say the 
the, the events of Genesis 1 through 11 occurred. They certainly occurred. But the way that they're told includes this element of supernatural conflict. Mm-hmm. So the way the writers convey both, you know, they have a tough job. They have to com- convey things that happened and also sort of why those things happened yeah. or how or, or, or what's going on behind the scenes. And that's why a, a lot of biblical telling of history comes out the way it does and sounds the way it does. Mm-hmm. They're, they're not two firmly cat, firm categories of this one's real and this is unreal, or this one's history and this one's like spiritual stuff. You know, yeah. it, we dichotomize those things. And it, we, in some cases, we actually sort of manufacture our own dilemmas when we do that. And the yeah. biblical writers just didn't look at it that way. Oh, all right. Uh, one last uh, theological question, and then we'll get to the uh, bonus segment. Um, when I think about the Old Testament, and uh, specifically concerning salvation, soteriology, um, I've, I've heard you say often that uh, folks in the Old Testament were saved by, uh, be- uh, let's see if I can get this right, believing believing loyalty uh, to Yahweh. Is that, first off, is that is that correct? I don't want to misrepresent you. Yeah, yeah, I, I like to put it that way. Yeah. Alignment, they align themselves with Yahweh. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, clearly they they through Paul's letters in the New Testament, we identify Jesus as Yahweh. Um, but uh, clearly, they wouldn't be able to make that uh, connection from the Old Testament. So if it was good enough then to just have believing loyalty in Yahweh, is it still today without equating Yahweh with Jesus? Yeah, I'll, I'll approach that two different ways. On, on the one hand, there is a disconnect between the, 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 the two Testaments in terms of the revelation given about Yahweh. In other words, that stuff that is crucial to believe so that you, when you align your, your will, you know, you align yourself with Yahweh, there's a basis for doing so. So in the Old Testament, what do they have to believe? You know, I, I like the illustrations of the pagans. Because these are the ones that Jesus actually uses when he's talking to the Pharisees. He uses, you know, Naaman the leper mm-hmm. and the widow of Zarephath as illustrations of, of faith. Yeah. You know, he doesn't take Abraham. It's not, you know, Moses. It's, it's these two pagans, you know. Right. And so what, what do they know? In Naaman's case, it's, it's very explicit. I know now that Yahweh is the God of all gods, and I will worship no other. Mm. i got to go home now. Okay, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna read Torah, I'm never gonna do Sabbath, I'm never gonna do a Jewish festival because I, I live in Syria. Yeah. You know, but it's very clear. Where, what he he has one point of theology, but it's the most important one: love God. You know, and then of course you have love your neighbor. So he gets the loving God. He that that goes in the W column for Naaman, and and so, you know, Jesus says that's good enough. Yeah. I mean, he got it right. He doesn't know a whole lot of you know of other things. And so if, if you're an Israelite, I mean, you, ha- you obviously have more revelation than that. But that's the fundamental thing. Who is God above all others? Who is God, the true God, and who is not? Mm-hmm. This is why David can be such a screw-up in his life, but he never wavers right. on this fundamental thing. There's no ambiguity there. He never struggles there. And this is what God wants. God wants believing loyalty. Yep, you're going to screw up because you're human. I got it. (laughs) God's not surprised. You know, the widow of Zarephath, what does she do? She gives a room to the prophet, you know, of Yahweh. She lives at ground zero for Baal worship. 
Okay, if anyone finds out that she's harboring a prophet of Yahweh in Baal's domain, she's dead. But she does it. Why? Why would she do that? Because she believes this guy, you know, is a prophet of the true God. She doesn't know anything, but she knows that. Yeah. And she's choosing him. Her action shows that she assigns more validity. She's going to side with Yahweh, not Baal. Mm-hmm. So they, these are really simple things. Now, in the New Testament, you know, we have, yeah, we have the same God made, fl- made flesh with Jesus. And the, so the question is, what do we have to believe to sort of step over the same line or, you know, or align ourselves with him? And I would say we do need to believe the gospel, because if we don't believe the gospel, then we are rejecting something that the true God has said about himself. Hmm. In Jesus' case, it's, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except by me. It's pretty, pretty clear. Now, having said that, I do wonder at times whether people who lack that extra revelation— you know, if, if God knows their hearts and knows thoughts like, well, if they would have had the extra revelation, they would have made the same believing loyalty choice. And so then then Old Testament examples sort of give us precedent for God making, you know, making that count, so mm-hmm. to speak. So I don't know that that's the case. I, I kind of suspect it would be. I think it would be consistent with God's nature. Um, you know, again, God knows their hearts, what they you know do believe. You know, if they are aligning themselves with him based upon whatever it is they know, but they just don't happen to know this other stuff now, mm-hmm. and that I, I put that on, on God's job description and not mine. Yeah. It's just something that I wonder about, and I would not be surprised, and I don't think it would be inconsistent for God to do that. No, certainly not. Well, thank you so much. Uh, if you're listening, uh, I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Heiser some questions about UFOs and aliens, so you're going to want to stick around for that. Uh, you... <laughs> Naturally. Uh, the pop culture modern pagan segment of the show. <laughs> yes, we, we've, done the, we've done what we needed to, and now we get to do what we want. No. Uh, so if you, you want to stick around for that, be sure to follow the link in the description over to our Patreon page and become a supporter so that you can get that. Uh, Dr. Heiser, thanks so much for doing this. Um, yep. And um, appreciate you coming on and taking time out of your day to do this. Yep, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us, guys. If you enjoyed the show, be sure to subscribe, whether on the podcast or YouTube, wherever you might be. If you want to watch the bonus segment, like I said, you need to follow the link in our uh, description below and uh, head on over to our Patreon page and become a supporter of the show, guys. We appreciate it, and we'll see you next time.